Today's scriptures from Luke 10, verse 1 through 11 and 17 through 20. Please stand for the reading of God's word. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest, harvest send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet one, no one on the road. Whenever house you enter first, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick and say to them, God, the kingdom of God has come near. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet will ripe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from the heavens. Below, I ha behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and all over the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. It's good to see you. It's good to be with you. Last week, we kicked off a new series that we've just entitled Identities. And I probably should have done this last week, but I didn't. So I want to do it this morning. There are a couple of foundational truths, foundational assumptions that, that you got to understand if you're going to understand what this series is all about. The first thing that I want to be abundantly clear on, both of these truths could be sermons in and of themselves, but I'll give them to you in a couple of sentences so you're getting a good deal today. Um, the first fundamental assumption, foundational assumption that we're bringing into this series is that we do not achieve peace with God through things that we do. Peace with God comes through the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. And so as we talk about these things that we're called to, us doing these things doesn't earn our peace with God. Christianity, it's not a stairway to heaven that we climb through our moral obedience. Christianity is about God coming down from heaven to save us while we were dead in our sins. So that's number one. Number two that goes along with that, though, is that Jesus Christ, when he saves us, he doesn't just save us from things. He also saves us to things. And what I mean by that is Christianity is not just that we are forgiven. Jesus didn't just come to save us from our sins, death, hell, judgment, wrath, all of those things. He did that, but there's more to it than that. That's what he saved us from. A lot of Christians, we struggle to say, but what has he saved us to? What's the life that he has for us? How does believing in Jesus, trusting in Jesus, actually change our lives today? And that's the, the question that we're trying to answer in this series. Jesus, he doesn't save us to a lengthy checklist of commands that we need to obey. He saves us to a new way of being, and I would argue a new way of being human. He, he does some work at the very bottom of our souls, rearranges some things, and gives us a new identity that has some different dimensions to it. And so last week we talked about the dimension, uh, the identity of being disciple, and how a disciple is 
one who devotes themselves to another in order to learn from them and become like them. And so the minute you believe in Jesus, he declares you a disciple. And so that's true. But then you spend the rest of your life living into that identity more and more and more, growing into what is already true. Now, understanding all this is crucial if we're to understand the identity of witnesses that Jesus has given us, which is our goal this morning, to talk through that. In Acts 1.8, right before his ascension, Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus didn't say, you will go and witness for me, although that's true. What he says here to the early disciples is you will be my witnesses. It's an identity thing. And the essence of the mission that Jesus has given us is to bear witness to him. There's actually a beautiful simplicity to the mission God's given us. Our mission is to bear witness to Jesus with our lives, with our actions, and with our words. It's simple And yet, I think most of us, we kind of struggle with the idea of mission. I think most Christians, I mean, it's simple, but that doesn't mean it's easy. And I think most Christians, they struggle with the idea of mission. Words like witness or witnessing maybe make you uncomfortable. Evangelism, the thought of doing that terrifies you or maybe turns you off. And there's a lot of different reasons for this. Maybe you you, uh, didn't grow up in the church like me and you had some bad experiences early on with evangelism, and so the thought of doing evangelism is kind of scary, and also maybe maybe for some of you it's unappealing. Uh, Others of you, mission is something that intrigues you, but you grew up in the church, and you heard stories about the missionaries who at the age of 16 ran away from home, got on a boat, went to a foreign land, led the whole nation to Jesus, led this massive revival, you know, and you're like, "I'll, I'll never be that person. That's not me. And so for you, it kind of seems like an out there thing. My hope this morning is that wherever you're at, we can can demystify the mission. And in particular, I want to debunk some of the common myths that I see in the church when it comes to mission. There's a lot of baggage and a lot of assumptions that we make that I would argue aren't from the scriptures. Maybe they're more from from our own experiences, about what the mission is and what it means for us to be faithful in it. And so we're going to press into Luke 10, the passage Riley just read for us, because this text, it's a beautiful text on mission. It confronts a lot of those common myths. Uh, And I want to be clear, there are some particulars of this text that uh, do not directly apply to us, that this text is what we would call a descriptive text, not a prescriptive text. That's why we don't play with snakes or play kiss the scorpion, you know, that Jesus gave some specific things to the disciples then. Um, But the principles and the foundation, the blueprint that's laid out here is echoed throughout the New Testament. And so we're going to look at those principles. So we're going to look at seven myths, seven points. It's a long sermon, but it won't be long, I promise. It'll actually be shorter. Um, Pressing in, helping us gain a vision for what God is calling us to. Number one, the first myth I want to expose is is the myth that living on mission, being a witness is optional, or with that, doing mission is reserved for special kinds of Christians, or only some people are called to do mission. And we won't spend a lot of time on this one, 
because witnesses is part of the identity Jesus gives us. But the principle we see again and again in the New Testament is Jesus never calls someone in without sending them back out. Jesus never calls someone in without sending them back out. So you have the 12 disciples. Jesus calls them in, and then what does he do? Luke 9, he sends them out. Then you have the 72 who get pretty interested in Jesus. They're not as close to Jesus as the 12. They come in and Jesus doesn't say, all right, well, the 12 are gonna do the mission. You guys don't have to worry about it. No, one chapter later, Jesus sends the 72 out on his mission. Fast forward, Acts chapter one, right before he ascends, he gives this command. There's 120 disciples that Jesus gives the mission to. He never calls us in without sending us out. He didn't look at the 12 disciples and say, you know what, a couple of you are boneheads and Judas, you're gonna betray me. I'm gonna stick with just these. It's part of what it means to be a Christian. He calls you in, sends you out. If we think about the disciple identity, what's a disciple? It's someone who devotes himself to a teacher in order to learn from them and become like them, grow into their likeness. Well, what was Jesus like when he walked the earth? What did he do? He went from town to town, everywhere he could, and he bore witness to the good news of the kingdom. And so must we. So number one, mission is not optional. It's, it gets to the very heart of Christianity. Now, myth number two, I think something that a lot of us, even in our heads, we might not state it this way, but there seems to be an assumption that mission is usually something that we do alone. That mission is something that it's kind of a one-on-one kind of thing. You know, in, in evangelical subculture, the one-on-one thing happens in coffee shops. We think it's a place where you sit down with someone and, you know, you have a very deep conversation. And there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But the pattern we see in the New Testament was mission was always done in community. The pattern we see in the New Testament is mission was always done together, believers locking arms together and stepping into things. So Jesus sends the 72 out. And if he was just concerned with canvassing as much area as possible, he made a tragic mistake in putting them two by two, right? He could cover twice the ground if he sent them out one by one, but he didn't. And this is a pattern. When he sends the 12 out, he does the same thing. Why? Well, because at the heart of the mission of God is community. We are created for community. It's not good for man to be alone. God, he's given us different gifts and our gifts have a way of complementing one another. And so he sends us out and you've got people who have strengths and weaknesses and vice versa and you go out together and it gives a more beautiful, more comprehensive picture of the body of Christ. I mean, think about the early church, Paul and Barnabas. You know, we think of Paul, maybe you think of Paul as the rugged, isolated missionary, but he wasn't. He was always traveling with people. And let me say, I bet you the churches he went to were really grateful for those people he traveled with. Because Paul, I love Paul, but he could be, I get the impression he could be pretty fierce, pretty rigid at times, you know, pretty in your face. And then you have Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement, right? And so both of them going together brought dimensions to the gospel that one of them by themselves, couldn't. So Jesus sends out two by two because we were created for community because in community, we more fully represent the body. And then with that, community done well is one of the greatest displays of the truth and power of the gospel. 
community done poorly, you know, is not good. But when Christians live in healthy community together, it's one of the greatest displays we have of the power and truth of the gospel. Jesus himself said, by this, all men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. 10 years ago, I went on a mission trip to Western Europe. Um, and it was kind of a discouraging trip, to be real forthright with you. Uh, we met with dozens of missionaries. If you don't know, Western Europe is not, um, it's kind of a very dry place spiritually. And we went, we met with all of these different missionaries, and the common theme we heard again and again is that they were tired, that they were discouraged. Most of them, when they sat down with us behind closed doors, started crying pretty, uh, like, like within the first five or 10 minutes talking about their experiences. And there's a lot of reasons that it was hard. But one of the things that kind of blew my mind was that these missionaries, they never talked to each other ever. And I asked Larry, like, why don't they, it seems like they're all profoundly lonely and discouraged. Like, why don't, they're all in the same city. And Larry said, they're not allowed to. The agency that sent them, they have this fear that if we let the missionaries talk to each other, then they're going to talk to each other, and that's where their focus is going to be, and they're not going to actually live into the mission. And I, I guess I understand the fear, <laughs> but you're talking the hardest soil in the world, and then you took the best tool God's given us to break through that soil, and you took it out of their hands. I mean, one of the most compelling things we have to offer the world for the truth of Christianity, is the church. It's relationships. It's, it brings plausibility to, my, to our message. My mom, she's not a believer, and she, she has some very strong feelings about God, but every time she would encounter my friends, when I was in high school and college, she would say, I, don't, I never had friends like you have. It's compelling. And so community, it's not this isolated affair where we are the rugged, solo, individualistic missionary going out. No, we go together. We lock arms together. And what that means is different for everyone. Maybe that means that you and your friends are going out to dinner and you invite a coworker to join you. You and your friends are going to play around the golf. You invite a neighbor to come along. Your community group that meets week in and week out. Maybe every once in a while you throw a party in the neighborhood and invite other people over. Mission is something we do in community. And it seems like we as Christians, we struggle to hold these two things together. Sometimes you have Christians that love the community aspect of Christianity, and then you've got Christians that love the mission aspect of Christianity. But the secret is you got to hold them together. Because if you're the mission kind of Christian where it's like, we're going to take the hill, we're going to die, wherever, we, like we're going to do whatever it takes, but you don't have community, in the end, you kind of feel like a mercenary and you burn out. You get discouraged. If you're the community kind of person that's like, I like the community, don't love the mission so much. Community apart from mission leads to codependency. And I don't know if you've ever been in a Bible study or a group with other Christians that had no sense of mission. Pretty soon it turns into this like, well, it's just a need to be needed. Uh, you start griping and complaining about a lot of things because you don't have a common vision that you're achieving or pursuing together. But when you bring them together, mission and community, there's power, and their strength, it's a beautiful thing. We don't go alone. Myth number three, mission is really complicated. The living in obedience, 
to Jesus' call is really complicated and, and it takes a lot of effort to understand how to do this well. You know, over the last 50 years, there's been thousands of books and courses on mission and evangelism, and that's a good thing. I praise God for that. My only fear is that an unintended side effect of all of those things is that we can overcomplicate the mission and we can make people feel unqualified. If a church does evangelism training and you haven't done the training, then you can say, I'm not qualified to go do the work. And the strategies, they're good, but really the mission Jesus gives is really simple. We see the simplicity in this text when he sends them out and he says, hey, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. He does pretty much the same thing in Luke 9 when he sends the 12. He sends them out. He doesn't say, listen, you need these books, you need this argument, you need these whiteboards to make your case. He says, don't take anything. Clothes on your back and that's it. Why? Because he wants to foster in them a sense of dependency upon God. And so he says, go simply. You don't need grand strategic plans. And not only that, he gives them a really simple message. He doesn't give them a speech to recite. He gives them one line. He says, go into the towns, heal the sick, and tell them the kingdom of God has come near. He didn't give them four points to memorize, which there's nothing wrong with that. But he says, hey, go bear witness to what you've seen. The kingdom of God is breaking into the world as we speak. Tell everyone. I think this idea, that's why I love the language of bearing witness to Jesus because it, 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 there's a beautiful simplicity to it. You don't have to remember all the arguments. And I can't tell you how many Christians I've sat with. They're like, I don't know if I can answer everyone's questions. No one... No one's ever called you to be able to answer everyone's questions. Jesus said, go and bear witness. And it's powerful when you tell people your story. It's powerful when you tell people what God has done in your life and you connect it to what God has done in history. You know, I've shared this before, but I didn't grow up in a Christian house and I'm a pastor and that's very strange for people. You know, I meet people regularly. They'll ask me, what do you do? I'll tell them I'm a pastor. And for a lot of people, it's like, really? I didn't think those existed anymore, certainly not your age. Uh, and then the next question that I get asked often, was your dad a pastor? Uh, like trying to figure out why would you be a pastor? I'm like, no, my dad actually hated the church. Um, well, how'd you, how'd you get into, into pastoring? When I was 15, I was angry. I had a deep unrest in my soul, you could say. I was confused about the meaning of life. I was confused about everything. And then God showed up in my life in powerful ways through a few people. And he replaced that anger with the peace, the turmoil. He brought calm, the confusion. He brought clarity. It changed my life. And I've been following him ever since. And we don't, you know, I don't write the script for my life. He called me to be a pastor, which I never would have thought. You know, when I was a little kid, I didn't grow up you know, dreaming of standing behind a pulpit someday. Like, I want to be a baseball player. But this is what he did. And you know what? I've never had a person say, like, man, why are you shoving your religion down my throat? I say, that's interesting. Because it's true and it's real. And in a day and an age where people have been marketed to death by everything, when we try to sell Christianity as a product instead of speaking, bearing witness to what 
what has happened in reality in our lives, I think people see through it. Mission's not complicated. There's a simplicity to the message and the method. We go bear witness. Number four, fourth myth. Mission tends to happen randomly. You could say serendipitously. Um, If you hang around the church long enough, you'll eventually meet people who just have crazy stories of evangelism. My friend Jim's like that, who goes here. I was talking to him. I run into him, and he just tells me the craziest stories. Like, yeah, I was on a plane. As soon as the wheels were up, the person sitting next to me, I was in the aisle. They were in the window, and so it was just the two of us. They broke down crying, and they said, my life is a total wreck. I don't feel like there's any purpose to it. I feel so guilty for all the things I've done. Can you even find forgiveness in life? I wish I knew if God was real. <laughs> you know? And he's like, and so I shared the gospel with him. And we prayed before the, the plane landed. And it was amazing. And I'm meeting with him next week. And you hear stories. And I praise God for stories like that and people like that. May their numbers increase greatly in our church. But most of us, that's not our experience. And I think what happens when you hear stories like that and you've never experienced it, you think, I'm not, I'm not called to mission or evangelism because that kind of thing never happens to me. And that's just not the case. While the dramatic and spectacular, it's amazing when God works in that way, I would argue that's not typically how he works. And I would argue that's not even what Jesus called his disciples to. If you notice, when he sends the disciples out, he he goes and he says, find a house with a son of peace, which basically means find someone who's not hostile to you and stay there. And then he gives this really interesting command. He says, do not go from house to house. He says, when you roll into town and you find a place to stay, don't bounce all over the place. Now, this might have been a warning, like, As the disciples were in town, maybe they'd get more clout and favor and then wealthier people would invite them over and so maybe they'd be tempted to move on up as they spent time there. We don't know for sure. What we do know is Jesus said, hey, go put down roots and build real relationships and make that the home base for your mission. The mission, while there's a simplicity to it, there's also should be a stability, a groundedness to it. Be born through relationships that are developed. This is different than the drive-by, as I like to call it, drive-by evangelism that a lot of us have experienced. You know where people come and they, they throw tracks at you or call things out to you, but they're not actually engaged in life with you? Jesus is saying, no, put down roots. And I'll tell you, so much of ministry is a mystery to me. Like why some ministries flourish and others fade. Why some churches kind of blow up and do amazing things and others don't. When I know the pastors of both and they're both faithful people, some of it's just a mystery. But I have started to wonder, okay, what are some common themes that we've seen, that I've seen? And I'll tell you, the, the one common denominator I see in missions and ministries and churches that flourish is that a person or typically a group of people put down roots and stay grounded in one place for a long time. A long obedience in the same direction. Find any fruitful ministry and behind that ministry, you're gonna find some people who just stayed put for a while. We live in a highly mobile society, so I'm not saying you should never move. Uh, Sometimes moving is the only option. Sometimes it's the best option. 
And we even have missionaries we're sending out. You know, we have the Tolberts in Ireland. We have uh, the Stembers in East Asia. We have the Spears who are sending to Spain. Like they're uprooting. But do you know what they're going to do as soon as they get to where they're going? They're going to put down roots. And so the call here, what I want you to see is mission isn't just something that happens randomly. Sometimes that, that's the case. But typically, it's because people invest their lives into a community over a long period of time with some intentionality. And they develop relationships. And those relationships open doors of opportunity to bear witness. Number five. Mission is either or, the fifth myth. There's an ongoing debate in some circles of Christianity about what exactly our mission is. Are we called to do good, do good or proclaim good news? Which one's more important? How much emphasis should we put on each? And I can't unpack that whole argument. I'll just say when Jesus sent out the 72, he said, heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. He healed the sick and then he proclaimed, he did good and then called them to proclaim good news. And I would argue that doing good, bringing healing, and proclaiming the gospel, they go hand in hand. They're complementary. And we can argue which one's more important. I've got my things holding this before you. They're both really important. There's a real dissonance when you say, I've got great news, I care about your soul, but everyone knows you could care less about their bodies or their lives on this earth. That discredits you. Pastor Larry, he talks about, in training missionaries, he says, we want them to have a ministry, train them in the ministry of proclamation, which is sharing the gospel, but we also wanna train them in the ministry of presence, what it looks like to be present in people's life over a long period of time and to do good. And you have to hold those two together. And when you do hold those two things together, oftentimes beautiful things result. I was on the trip to the DR with the video you just watched. I went with my oldest, my nine-year-old daughter. And uh, the, the ministry we went with, Go Ministries, is an incredible ministry. And I was blown away by what they're doing and what God has done through them. They're fiercely committed to the gospel, to proclaiming the gospel, and they have tons of fruit in the Dominican Republic. Tons of fruit. They've got influence, connections, all sorts of things. When I look at that, I mean, we attribute that to the grace of God, but I think the, the reason for their fruitfulness, some of it's not a mystery, because Go does incredibly, some incredibly good works in the city. They don't just proclaim the good news. And so they, uh, they built a multi-million dollar medical clinic where anyone in the neighborhood can come and get free medical care. They uh, have nine nutrition centers, I think, and they feed about 1,000 kids a day, six days a week. And for most of those kids, that's the most substantial meal that they'll get. They opened a school which is one of the better schools in the entire city. They train pastors. They have an incredible sports program and training kids in sports. And then you look at all of that and you see how much credibility they have because of the good works they've done that it's no wonder that the good news is going forth with such strength there. And that's why we do things like Windy Hills Cleanup. We are involved with Refuge Ministries and Orphan Care Alliance because doing good opens doors 
doing good opens doors. Now, the key is you got to walk through the door, but we don't have to decide, is it either this or that? It's both and word and deed, presence and proclamation. Number six, mission. The sixth myth is mission is contingent on our abilities. Think if I were to ask most of you, do you want to see God move in powerful ways in our city? Do you want to see lives be changed here and now and in eternity? I think most people would say yes. I don't think any of us who claim the name of Jesus look around and we say, ah, oh, it's pretty good. Let's just keep it as it is. Like we want, we have a desire when we really get down to it to see God do tremendous things. But with that desire, we have the desire, but oftentimes we lack the confidence we think that's not for me or I'm not gifted in those things. I don't have the necessary skills or abilities. I don't have the experience. And I would just say what we see in this text is Jesus sends out a bunch of amateurs who've been following him, you know, for maybe a couple of weeks or a couple of months. And he didn't look through them and say, who are the best most compelling, dynamic speakers and visionaries. Let's send them. He was like, now the whole lot of you, let's go. I'm sending you all out. It's not contingent upon your ability. He says, I'm sending you out with my authority. That's where the power comes from. I'm giving you authority to go. This is why Paul says we're ambassadors for Christ. Our power for mission it's not in our abilities. It's in the fact that the Lord of the universe said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And so we go with his authority. I think so often we get skittish thinking about stepping into mission. I, I'm just not very good at it. I mean, when we went to the Dominican, be really frank with you, two to three days in, I was kind of like, how can I get home early? It's great, glad I got to see everything. I wanna go back where there's different food, air conditioning, and not so much poverty. I mean, that's what was going on in my heart. We spent a day in a very poor town that was built in the shadow of a huge garbage dump. And then the next day we spent time in a little town that was built on a garbage dump. And encountering the poverty and the need and the brokenness. I mean, we have our brokenness here. We're just really good at hiding it. They're not very good at hiding it. It was overwhelming. And it was kind of like, I don't know if I have anything to offer here. And you press through. And I think most people on the team felt like that a little bit, like, what, what are we doing here? But we pressed through. By day four, God kind of did a turn in my heart and in the heart of a lot of the team because we realize we're not here to change the world. We're here trying to be obedient and we're here in the name of Jesus and his authority. It's not about our ability or what we can and can't do. It's about us showing up and being present and trusting that God will do tremendous things if that's what he chooses. Our call is to show up and to be present. I think we did get to see some really amazing things. If we look at our abilities though, it's so easy to think, ah, I'm not cut out for it. God, he does tremendous things when we show up and are willing. I was talking to one of our members between services. He's about 50 years old. He's a middle school teacher, came to faith about seven years ago. You know who led him to the Lord? A 
13-year-old girl in one of his classes. So all the teenagers in the room, like wondering, can I have an influence? Yes, you can. And he said, they just showed up and they, they had real honest conversations with me. And after a while, it's like, she seems more mature and has a better understanding of the world than I do. I need to press in. That's a beautiful story. It's not about ability. It's about authority. Jesus gives us the authority. We go. Lastly, last myth. Mission success is measured by fruitfulness. I think this is a big one. How do we know if a mission is successful? Well, we typically say, how big is it? What's their budget? How many people are there? What have they started? How big have they grown? We, we typically measure, like, am I being successful in a mission by looking at the numbers? But one of the things that should really sober us all up in this text are the warnings Jesus gives. I mean, Jesus, while he's walking the earth, sending with special power to cast out demons, to heal the sick, all of these things to the disciples. And then you know what he says? You're going to go do all of this wonderful, tremendous stuff. And some people just, they're not going to hear it. Some towns you're going to go to and you're not going to see any fruit. You got to shake the dust off your sandals, off your feet and go to the next town. Jesus, he lets us in here saying, listen, do not equate fruitfulness with faithfulness. Do not equate fruitfulness with success. Do not think that just because things are getting bigger, that means you're automatically successful. And don't think just because you're not seeing fruit, that means you're not being faithful. You know, all cards on the table, I want to see God do amazing things in and through this church, I want to see truckloads of fruit come as a result of our shared labor together. But we don't measure success and fruitfulness. We measure it in faithfulness. Now, I'm convinced when you're faithful, you'll also be fruitful. But here's the thing. You're not always going to see the fruit. That doesn't mean you're not fruitful. You just won't always see it. One of my friends years ago, we did ministry together, and she'd been there four years before I got there. It was a ministry in a high school and she gave just four years of her life to this ministry, 20 hours a week. And I show up and she was like, yeah, I don't really have anything to show for it. I had one girl that I was meeting with and reading the Bible, but now she won't return my calls. Um, and I was like, how are you doing with that? And she was 21 at the time. And this was profound. She said, I'm okay with it. God promises that there'll be fruit. He just doesn't guarantee that we're going to see it. And so I trust that what I've done here, I didn't labor in vain. Last year, I went and did a fund, spoke at a fundraising banquet for that ministry. And it was something like 20% of the school is now involved with it. It's amazing. There was no one. She served faithfully, didn't see the fruit. She actually did get to see the fruit. It just it came a little later than she expected. When we were in the Dominican Pastor Ben and Pastor Kyle and a couple others, you saw a little bit of in the video, they went to uh, a prison to do ministry there. And this was like a real prison, not just like white collar embezzling. This is people who've been in prison for 25 or 30 years. And they went because the ministry, they've been doing ministry with those prisoners and they were baptizing all of these inmates. And while they were there, one of the local pastors in the DR started asking some of our pastors 
to perform the baptisms. And our pastors were like, no way. We didn't, we didn't, you put in the work, you should baptize them. We, we just are glad to be able to witness this. And the pastor responded, listen, we sowed, I want you to reap, because in the end, God is the one who makes things grow and God is the one who gets the glory. And so they did. And they talked about how humbling it was. All that to say, you don't know where your faithfulness is going to hit people in their journey. Who led you to faith? I have one person I can point to, but I also have about 30 people I can point to when you zoom out. I have one person who kind of sealed the deal for me, but I have a whole bunch of people that, and there is probably a whole bunch more that were praying for me that I never knew. And so we measure success by are we being faithful, not just how big are things growing. I want to close by saying this. When you hold these things together, I think it's a really compelling and beautiful mission and vision that we've been called to. To live life together with the simplicity of mission of bearing witness, with stability of doing good works and proclaiming good news, of trusting in not our ability but Jesus' authority, and then of just being faithful for the long haul. That's a powerful vision of what the church has been called to. And so I don't know which one of the myths that you've been wrestling with. I don't know if you would say, yeah, I'm stepping into the mission. I will say we've worked really hard to create pathways for you to step in. And if you've been in the atrium this morning, there are a lot of different ways. If you're saying, I'm more interested to, to step into something, we've tried to create a lot of avenues for you. As we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded of Jesus' sacrifice and we're reminded of what he told the 72. Because if you remember, they came back from their mission and they're like, it was awesome. We've done all this awesome stuff. And Jesus is like, that's great. That's really great. And he said, but don't rejoice in those things. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. And the way we find the strength to continue on in mission, to not burn out, to not get discouraged is when we know it's not our identity. Our identity is secured through the finished work of Jesus. We step into mission because we know our names are written in the book of heaven and we want to see other names in that book as well. So if you're here, you're a believer, I encourage you to come to eat, to drink, to feast on this meal, anticipating the great meal that Jesus is preparing for us at the end of the age. But I also encourage you, as you're coming to this table, think about who else would you want to see at this table? What would it look like for you to invest in their life? Let me pray.